Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your kindness to us. Thank you that you are full of mercy. Thank you that, that we struggle to see it. You see the world for what it really is, for you made it and you're redeeming it. And so we pray, God, that you would just help us to learn and to continue to learn and be learners and to receive and to be open and to be humble and to be willing. And let that uh, begin again today as we hear your word, as we are together today. Um, and we just pray that you'd use it. Bless our children today as they're learning more and more what it means to be worshipers. I pray that you would fill them and that place back there and, and our catechists and others who are working with them, just fill them with your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and that's what we want, the very freedom you've made us for and made possible for us. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This last line of our gospel reading today, it might seem as though it's merely tied to what Jesus has to say here about generous giving, but it's really actually a bookend to everything that we've heard from Luke 6 today. And it's a finer point on what we call the golden rule right here in verse 31. It captures the big picture of what we might call a heavenly reciprocity in everyday dealings, right? This mutual blessing that makes the world a better place. One relationship at a time, one interaction at a time, one opportunity at a time, even if we don't see it as an opportunity. And I, th I believe that Jesus is doing two things here. He's making a promise, and he's imparting a kind of power to his followers, or, as he puts it in verse 27, to you who hear. It's a power that's rooted in a deeper security. A deeper security that when exercised, it can actually turn the world right side up. Even though it so often makes us feel upside down. At least for a moment. So I'm going to keep working backwards a little bit from verse 38. Jesus is using some marketplace imagery here. It's just a, maybe a mini parable, if you want to call it that, of a merchant, right? Who's measuring out the grain or the spice which you're buying or for which you're trading. He scoops a large amount. He packs it down, right? He shakes it so that it settles in, and now there's room for even more. So he scoops more on the top. So much that bits are falling off the sides as he's dumping it into the fold or pocket in the front of your outer cloak. Now, we have our pockets here and all of that, but very often people in that day, their cloak or their robe, they, they either would hold a fold together to, to carry things in, or either it was stitched that way so that they could put stuff down in there, like little kangaroos running around the ancient world. So he's giving you an undeniably generous portion as much as he can in one serving. Now, it might be helpful to think of the opposite. Sometimes it is. So you might want to think of a bag of Lay's potato chips here. You pay $1 for greasy potatoes and $2 for air that smells like greasy potatoes. <laughs> this is what I was thinking during this bizarre Lay's, I don't know if you saw the bizarre Lay's commercial during the Super Bowl. If you saw it, I was, just, I was thinking... Great, you got some A-list celebrities for your bizarre commercial, but just put more bags in the chips, or, or chips in the bag, okay? Just, just, just give us more chips. That's all we're asking for. I've thought, I thought about how, you know, some bags you see 30% more free in a big red banner. I just uh, thought it would be great for maybe Lays to put a big red banner that just says, what you were expecting when you bought this. 
right? You open it up, it's air. So the opposite. It's the opposite of that that's going on here. And then after this, Jesus is going to abruptly shift to a parable about leadership and hypocrisy. But this image of the merchant has, it's put a powerful exclamation point on everything that he's just told his disciples. About what? About unexpected and even undeserved love and mercy and provision and forgiveness that flow from the character of God. From the love of God. The Lord is actually the lavish shopkeeper in the mini parable, right? But this is about more than direct blessing from him when we are generous. I believe this is actually about, as I said, this reciprocity, the way things work that's woven into the tapestry of the universe. It's stitched together, it's bound together by, uh, by a truth that often seems so alien to us in our scarcity our self-protection, right? This, the promise and the power in what Jesus is saying are actually about truth that's anchored in the character of a lavish and loving God. And this truth that operates in the world, He has made and is redeeming in His love. It's about the kingdom that is coming through Him. It's also coming through those who hear and accept what He's saying. I believe Jesus is saying this is the way the world really works. And we need to be reminded this often, that truth by its very nature, it's not merely a set of propositions, you know, to be understood and accepted. Truth is not an explainer, per se. Truth is actually how things are, how they work, regardless of our understanding of them or our acceptance of them or our interpretation about them, you could say that truth is actually synonymous with reality. Does that make sense? It's like the gravitational pull of the moon that affects the ocean tides. Every creature under the ocean and every vessel traversing and travailing on top of the ocean. Truth is like that pull. To put it another way, the truth is a culture in which to participate. It's an economy from which to benefit. Truth can be functionally replaced, something else, some other way of thinking. It can be ignored. It can be subverted, right? It can be misrepresented, but it can't be changed. Not because it's, uh, it can't be because it's woven into the tapestry of the world, of the universe. It will last when counterfeits dissolve. It always has. Because truth has no agenda. It simply is. And you know what? Everything else is something else. Often we don't know it until we stand that something else against the truth. When we talk about judgment, that's what we mean, right? Judgment is simply, uh, it's, it's measuring something against a standard. What we might believe is true or good or beautiful, measured against what is actually true and good and beautiful. It's our versions of reality ultimately measured against reality itself. This is what we mean also when we join our voices uh, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, right? And the Isaiah 6 chorus saying, the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Or when Paul tells the Colossians that all things are held together in Christ. If anything is good, if anything is beautiful, anything is true, if it's coherent, if it's going to last, then it's a secondary downstream way in which God's ways and God's works are going public in the world that he's made. And that's what we mean by glory. 
God going public in us, through us, and through the way the world works. Now, what you might hear in Luke 6 today is uh, you might just hear a set of rules, some of which seem not only impossible, but impractical. But what we're meant to hear actually is an invitation to tap into, to live into this reality, this deep generosity and subversive security of the God who loves us and the world that he's redeeming. It's a call out of the short-sighted ethics that we justify and by which we live and into the culture of the kingdom and the economy of heaven. Even in really difficult moments, in difficult relationships, in challenging opportunities, not even in, but especially in the difficult circumstances. In 2009, the University of Notre Dame launched a very significant, like $5 million study called the Science of Generosity Initiative. And this initiative resulted in many publications, many, many writings and presentations, among them a book by sociologists Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson, who you may have heard of. The book was called The Paradox of Giving. And it focuses on two paradoxes, really. Here's the first. It's captured in Jesus' words, and it happens to be captured in Juliet's gushing words to Romeo, if you're a Shakespeare wonk. The more I give to thee, the more I have. It's a paradox. Smith and Davidson assert that same point, backed up by broad quantitative you know, they did broad surveys and qualitative. They did interviews with people, and they mined a lot of data. And they, they put it this way. The more you give, the better off you are. The study wasn't even just focused on material giving or, you know, financial uh, giving, but also on volunteerism, on forgiveness, and other acts of relational kindness to neighbors. What they found is that generosity appears to actually coincide with happiness, Steady happiness, good health, avoidance of depression, a sense of purpose in life, and a sense of personal growth. They found out that sacrificial giving or acts of kindness unlocked an even deeper sense of freedom. Doesn't sound like a rule, does it? It just sounds like the way things are and the way we're made. About forgiveness in particular, here's what they wrote. This form of generosity and the positive feelings it evokes in generous forgivers have been shown by studies to reduce stress, tension, and sadness, to lead to lower heart rates, lower skin conduction levels, whatever that means, lower blood pressure. By contrast, those who ungenerously hold grudges are more angry, feel less in control of their lives, and partly as a result exhibit symptoms of unhealthy physical conditions. That's the first paradox, right? The second paradox in their book probably won't surprise us, but you know what? It should surprise us. Here it is. Despite all these benefits, this reality, relatively few people are especially generous. People reported a sense of the value of generosity. Oh, yes, of course, but when asked more specific questions, there wasn't actually a lot of practice beneath the value. They believed generosity was good. They just didn't believe it enough. What they found and what we discover is that what Jesus teaches here is not merely one suggested way of being in the world. It turns out to be the way, the truth, the life, 
At least if you want to experience a higher level of freedom. If you want to participate in flourishing and not languishing. But the culture in which Jesus lived and taught was just as resistant as we are to this stuff. Dealing with enemies uh, prayerfully and generously beyond the pale, right? Resisting retaliation and revenge, holding our losses loosely and giving without an expectation of direct benefit or return. The interpersonal fabric of Jesus' day is actually described by um, socio-cultural uh, historians as patronal. And you could maybe unpack that already in your mind, patronal. It's this social dynamic that's all about who owes you what and what that makes them and what that makes you. Which rung of the ladder that puts you on at any given time and puts them on. Outside your closest circles in that day, gifts were often seen as debts to be repaid. Well, I did that for you, so you're probably going to do this for me. And so you kind of keep a little account going, right? If someone gives to you, you actually you owe them something in return, even if they said it's a gift. If you give to them, you've now got them on the hook a bit. Relationships beyond family were very transactional. And even hospitality, which the ancient world was known for, it was st- there's a very so- high societal value then. It was still very conditioned by this sense of duty and what kind of position it puts you in when you offer hospitality and what it puts them in. Does that make sense? Let me ask you, have you ever done something for someone or given to someone, and because they didn't write you a thank you note, you felt differently about having done it for them or given it to them? You don't have to say it out loud or raise your hand. You can if you want. This is church. You can confess your sin, right? (laughs) Did you start to feel a little differently about them in general because they didn't write you that thank you note? That's a patronal instinct. It's alive with us today. It's what? Strings attached. It's not obvious to us at first, but Jesus is reframing the golden rule in verse 31. We've heard it many, many times, but it meant something different when they said it, and then Jesus took it back, so to speak, for reality. It was actually more of a tactic until he cast it in a new light. They would have understood it this way. Do to others what will ensure they will respond in a certain way toward you. Sounds different, doesn't it? Basically, it was about being shrewd. It meant working the social system for your own benefit and security. For example, if you lend to this person, they'll have to relate to you as a patron, and then you get to relate to them as a debtor, and you'll have a leg up. So Jesus actually takes this, he invokes this well-known saying to reinterpret it. He's recasting it in the light of the benefit of others as an end in itself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You might say Jesus is putting it maybe like this. Imagine you're on the other side. What would you want from you? Certainly not shrewdness. How many of you are just heading out into your Monday just hoping people will be really shrewd with you, right? None of you. Zero percent. You'd want generosity and empathy and forgiveness. You'd want people to keep short accounts with you, right? So verses 32 through 34 are very telling. Jesus begins to just lay bare these patronal ethics that pervaded the society at the time. These, they're self-protective and they're self-preserving in the end. Uh, he's, he says that they're out of step with people who claim to belong as children to the merciful and lavishly generous Most High God. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit of that is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And his audience might be saying, well, duh, that's how it works, right? And he's saying, no, that's not how it works. And so just paraphrasing this succinctly, he's saying, you're not everybody else. You have a heavenly Father who's merciful, kind to the ungrateful and the evil, he says. These are our ethics. This is how it really works. Again, when he says, what benefit is that to you? Jesus suggests that there is a basic personal benefit to living according to this right-side-up ethic, and it's grounded in the character and the love of God. If God is who He is, then what might that mean for who we are? Living this way pays off, even if we are powerfully disinclined and powerfully disincentivized by our culture, by the world, to do so. Some scholars have suggested here that Jesus is just setting the bar incredibly high so that we know how badly we need God's grace and help when we fail. We need His forgiveness when we fall short of these. So here's, here's the big thing that everybody would do if they really, really, really could do it. You can't do it, so in the gap is God's grace. To be sure, we need that kind of grace because we do fail it. Lots of, we need lots of it. But if that's all Jesus is doing, then why would He include the promise of reward? That doesn't seem very logical or kind or... A lot of things. Why would he tie this kind of ethic together with our fundamental identities as God's children? Suggesting that this this ethic is actually out of reach, and more than that, the very blessing we're meant to confer on the world as a result? I think we often, let me just talk about grace for a minute. I think we often stop too short in our understanding of grace, as though grace is only what we need when we fail. Is that right? No, grace is also what we get when we succeed. Grace is how we succeed. Jesus is not merely highlighting the gap between our ways and God's ways. He's giving us an imagination for narrowing that gap in the way we see ourselves and others, in the way we live. And God is doing this in His own love and kindness and acceptance and forgiveness of us. He's equipping His disciples in the here and now to just recover this Uh, This endued image and likeness of our Creator, the quality of humanity that tends to be just buried under the cold ways of the world. The gift of God's grace poured out by His Holy Spirit. That's how we have the power to change and the power to heal and the power to live anchored in the security we have in Him. It's how we can make a difference in our relationships, even in our hardest moments and seasons. Grace fundamentally, guys, it means God's acceptance. It seems to me that Jesus is saying this is not only comforting, but it's also really empowering. It's empowering. Grace not only swoops in when we fail, but what does it do? It sweeps us up to affect our world. Grace is how God goes public through us. In no uncertain terms, really, Jesus promises that whatever losses we perceive on the front end, you know, looking through our tiny peephole of reality, God will supply. God will respond to those losses. The world, the universe He's made, will ultimately bear us up. It's already written into the code of creation. It's there for the receiving by faith. And I suppose the relevant question when we allow the gospel to speak to us again is whether or not we're willing to take Jesus up on it. And we get lots of opportunities to do that, don't we? 
At the end of every service at Village, we join our voices with our Kenyan brothers and sisters. And it might feel you've done this enough, that that's what we do, and it's, it's mildly encouraging. You know, we send our problems and difficulties to the cross of Christ. In the third proclamation, we send the devil's works to the cross. And that might seem odd to you, but that's what John said. He said that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So insofar as they've been at work in your life, we grab them up and we send them to the cross. What we're doing is symbolic, but it's no less powerful. We are proclaiming that there is a promised return on that trust in Jesus. That the things we can't deal with in our lives fully, our difficulties and our problems and the works of the devil, we give them to him. And that his suffering was not weakness, but actually power in those things and over those things. That from his cross and resurrection, new life is available and it's coming. It's coming. Help is coming. Healing is available. Hope is possible. It's worth considering that the Son of God and the Creator of the universe who took on flesh, actually said these challenging words in the shadow of himself being betrayed, falsely condemned, robbed of his clothing, beaten mercilessly, abandoned by his friends, and killed. This kind of power to overcome evil, to put, let's say, medicine in the world and not poison, is what he's offering his disciples. They're going to face a lot of hardship and difficulty. It's what he's offering us. We're going to face a lot of hardship and difficulty for a lot of different reasons. But the reward is not replacement clothing or a direct deposit in our bank accounts for our losses. It's certainly not the value of being comparatively better, more restrained human beings than our enemies. The reward is a dignity. It's reality. It's a dignity that transcends the injustices of the world. That they are not the final word. The reward is an end to cycles of revenge and retaliation when that's our instinct. The reward is a resilience that actually grounds us, grounds our sense of self, not in what happens to us, but in who we are because of whose we are. Or at least who we say we are. No matter what we lose or give away, sons and daughters of God simply can't run out of what is infinite. And that's what Jesus is, is inviting us into. The reason Jesus can call us to this way of being in the world is because he's already provided for it. He's going to be providing for it as he's training his disciples to think about the world this way. The very resources we need to be generous socially, relationally, financially or otherwise he has provided and is providing by grace if we will listen to him again and just take him a little more seriously every time christians believe that mercy grace and forgiveness have changed and will change the world and like anything that really works it has to work right here and right now between you and me so we say if it's real it's local that's how a virtue really works. You know that? It's not an idea. It has as much power in the particular as anything else. It has to have that power. It only has broad power because it works in the personal and in the particular. The things we want for the world, we have to believe they can be enacted and experienced in our world. All that most of us really have is just today. 
and the people in our sphere, that person in front of you, that opportunity that you have to be a blessing, that bank account with your name on it, that enemy in your neighborhood or on the HOA that you regret having served on, right? Even in the enemy in your family who threatens to live in your head perpetually. These are our opportunities. Certainly we should care about broader injustice, but that's really not fully what this passage is about. We should certainly defend the weak, advocate for the downtrodden, expose wholesale corruption and systemic greed in our land at every turn. But Jesus is concerned about our own confrontation with some of these things, with life as it happens to us, wherein we actually have some power, more power than we often realize or remember. We have the power of the cross and the resurrection. The power that sustains heaven and earth, actually. This is the power that changes the world one relationship, one injustice, one opportunity at a time. And I'll close with this. You go back to our Isaiah 61 text in here. It's abbreviated from the reading, and I'd encourage you to go back and read it beyond. But you hear these words in Isaiah 61. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Who are they? Who are they? They are the ones that God has set at liberty. They are the ones whose broken hearts are mended, whose poverty is no more, whose imprisonment is over. And they become the ones who build, raise up. They become the ones who repair, the ones planted as oaks to glorify the Lord. Because they know who they are. Because they live in the divine economy. They live according to God's reality. And Jesus is simply inviting us to be they. When we do begin to live like this, our common humanity, it just comes into bold relief, right, against the cold ethics of this transactional and patronal and co competitive and self-preserving and self-interested culture. Even the warped economy of approval and of uh, performance that's always just a thumb scroll away. By the grace of God, what we've become and are becoming are they who understand the power of forgiveness and of mercy and of open-handedness and of open-mindedness and of patience and of grace. We see them not only as benefits to us, all those things, but as blessings we're called to confer upon a broken world. That's what they are. And you know what? Because of God, they are pressed down, shaken together, running over, to those who will open the fold of their lives to our lavishly loving God. Do you believe it? We need the grace of God to believe this and to live it. Lord, help us in this. Many of us are hurting today because of what happened this morning or what happened this week. Many of us have unreconciled difficulty and, and confrontation in our lives. It's gone on a long time. Many of us are just feeling the scarcity in, in our own resources and other things. But we pray right now, Lord, that you remind us again who we are. As we come and we open the fold of our lives, even physically, we open our hands today to receive everything, to receive reality again, and to be blessed and changed by it, and to be a blessing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.